will join me in Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, this morning we will conclude chapter 8 of Luke, looking at verses 40 through 56. And the title of our sermon this morning is Providence in Suffering. John Miles told me that's a great title for one of my sermons. <laughs> Thankful. Could, it'll take you a minute to let that settle in. <laughs> Our key words for our worshipers in training this morning are blood, sleeping, and faith. Now, it doesn't take long to live life so that we would recognize that the world all around us is full of suffering. We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. It takes on various forms. Some endure more of it than others. But one thing is for sure. In a fallen, broken, sinful world, we will suffer. As certain as our birth and as certain as our death is the suffering that we will encounter in between. And you know, billions upon billions of dollars are spent every year to prevent it. And yet it's a universal reality. Try as we might, suffering is inescapable. Now certainly I'm not just talking about physical suffering. Many people have severely debilitating psychological issues. We suffer as a result of broken relationships, and we could go on and on in the various ways that we suffer in this broken world. And the great truth of Scripture that we must reconcile with our suffering is that God is sovereign. He is providentially working things out according to His good and perfect will. Now, I admit, good and perfect don't instantly sound like words that fit with suffering. And I assure you, when you're the one who is suffering, it's a lot harder to hear that than it is to talk about. But we have the steadfast assurance of the promises of God and the scriptures and the evidence of the ministry of Jesus to remind us. And even our own experiences tell us that with God in times of dark despair and our most debilitating pain, times when we are most likely to cry out and ask God, why? With God, we have a sure evidence of his compassion, his love, and his providential work to remind us that he cares to remind us that he is indeed working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We've already seen this very truth many times in the Gospel of Luke through the full range of emotional and spiritual suffering that those whom he has encountered have experienced. Fear, loneliness, insanity, unspeakable grief. And loss, physical suffering we have seen through disabilities and and death. 
And yet in each of them, we have seen the powerful hand of Jesus restoring life, restoring health, restoring joy and sanity. And as we end chapter 8 of Luke's gospel this morning, we're going to look at two more examples. In fact, two examples that while the people involved are very, very different when you compare them side by side, we will see their only relief for suffering is very much the same. Now briefly, I want to note how this relates to the larger context of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke can be viewed in four distinct sections. It begins, of course, with the introductory narratives regarding the birth of Jesus. We are currently in the second section of Luke, which outlines the public ministry of Jesus, primarily in the region of Galilee his teaching in parables, his miraculous works, his gathering of the disciples, the time in which Jesus is declaring the coming of God's kingdom in the fulfillment of the prophetic word, which he's referenced many times. The next section we will see begins at the end of chapter 9 when Jesus sets his eyes and his feet toward Jerusalem and he begins his march toward the fourth section, which is the passion narrative beginning in Luke 19, culminating in his death and resurrection. So I bring that up because it's very easy as we work through a gospel account to isolate the text These stories, take them apart from the grander context of what's going on. But it's very, uh, it's, it's very much something that Luke has written with great purpose. And so if we don't see the whole picture, we're going to miss the purpose behind what he is doing as we see him working. We can't detach the various events of the gospel narrative from the grander picture of the gospel of Luke and really from the grander picture of the Bible as a whole. So it's very important for us to remember as we see what we will this morning that Jesus is at work to proclaim in word and in deed that the kingdom of God is indeed at hand just prior to his march toward Jerusalem. So let's begin in our text this morning, beginning in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now remember last week we saw Jesus leaving the country of the Gerasenes to head back to Capernaum. And upon his arrival, Luke tells us now, he's greeted by a large crowd that was waiting for him. There was this expectation, there was excitement. This man, Jesus, is coming back. Let's go out to see him. I assume in the first century, Jesus was the biggest show in town. They had to see what he was going to do next. And we see that among all of the people emerges a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. As a ruler of the synagogue, he he would have been responsible for assigning all of the tasks of the synagogue, who would be teaching 
who would read the scriptures and what would be read, what prayers were going to be recited, and on and on. This was his work, his daily labor. He would have been a very well-off man monetarily. He would be a very clean man with regards to the Levitical code. He would have been accepted in the community. And what's very obvious from the text is that he had a family. In every way, it can be said that Jairus was a well-respected, wealthy man that in the earthly sense really had no personal needs. Now, all we need to do is simply recall the various synagogue encounters Jesus had with the leaders of the synagogues to be reminded that these were a class of men who were not necessarily very friendly with Jesus. Nor were they men who would be classified as humble or sensitive or full of faith in response to the work and ministry of Jesus and fulfillment of the prophetic word. Recall all that has happened thus far in the synagogues, the first being in Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. Remember what happens? He announces his public ministry as the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And the result was that the leaders of the synagogue attempted to stone Jesus and drive him over the edge of a cliff to his death. Later in the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus encountered and delivered a demon-possessed man. It's a very good possibility that that synagogue is the very one that Jairus was a ruler over. We also saw Jesus is healing the man with a shriveled hand, at which time the, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders accused him of breaking the Sabbath. You see, as a group, the religious elite were very clearly a bunch of men who were intimidated by Jesus. He threatened their privileged status. They violently opposed him. And eventually it was them who would be responsible for crucifying him. And yet here we see Jairus, a man among those who were the most prominent of the opposers of Jesus, falling at his feet and imploring him to do something. My daughter... She's only 12 and she's dying. Please do something. Please help, please. Oh, how we know as parents that we would do almost anything for the good of our children. And you see with Jairus, he really is sacrificing a great deal in this encounter. You know, he very easily could have determined others can approach Jesus, but I cannot. I cannot sacrifice my pride and bow before this rabbi who my fellow teachers despise. I can't lower myself to him in the way that others have. It's hopeless. But that's not what Jairus did. He loved his daughter. He was willing to risk his reputation to endure the petty objections that would surely come his way. He put all of his pride and envy, and prominent standing in the community, and did all of this in front of a large crowd, and he turns to Jesus with faith and bows before him, putting aside all of these other things. His little girl, his joy, all that he had wrapped up in that sweet little life was about to be snuffed out, and he was desperate. So what does Jesus do? 
Let's continue the second part of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And so we see Jesus going immediately. But what happens as he moves forward? Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So we see up front that Jesus, upon Jairus' request, didn't wait. He didn't ask questions. He didn't stop and say, well, I know I have the ability to do this. I know I have the resources to do this. I know it's a good thing to do, but I need to spend some time praying about it. We do that sometimes, don't we? Of course, I'm not implying at all that it's wrong for us to pray for wisdom and direction from God. But if we are asking God whether or not we should do something that we already know is good and right and biblical and within our means when the need arises, we would do well to follow Jesus' example here. Jairus asked and Jesus went immediately. But now we get this picture here that as Jesus went, he was making his way through the people in a way that we could imagine is like when a celebrity comes and everyone is crowding in or someone who the press wants to talk to or or a politician on the campaign trail. They're surrounded by people and someone has to walk out in front of them and, and clear the people out of the way. So there's this huge group of people at this point, and Jesus is, is moving through them, and all around him, people are pushing in around Jesus as he seeks to follow Jairus to his home. And from among the crowd, an unclean woman comes through, and she reaches out, and she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, and immediately, after 12 years of suffering, she's healed. Now, before we talk about the miracle itself and Jesus' response, I want us to take note of this contrast between Jairus and this woman. Now, for this woman, according to Leviticus 15, 19 through 30, a woman with a discharge of blood is considered unclean to include everything she touches and everything she sits on or lays on. Luke indicates that she was a poor woman because she had spent all of her living on physicians of whom none could make her well. And as a result of her uncleanliness, she surely was rejected by the community. She couldn't go to the synagogue. So nobody can touch her. Nobody can really be around her. She has no means on which to live. She's an outcast of society, even most likely within her very own family. No doubt she was lonely, she was broken, she was depressed. For this woman to have pushed through that crowd would have made all of the people she touched ceremonially unclean. But perhaps you can imagine her as Jesus walked just close enough for her to reach out and to touch his garment. And at the same time, As this is going on and as this woman is present, Jesus is being led through this crowd of people 
by a well-known, well-respected man of great means. And yet both of them, Jairus and this woman, were in the same place of desperation and need. You see, Jesus' concern is not who a person is in this world, how they are viewed by their neighbors, what kind of social status they enjoy. Jesus is concerned with the heart and particularly with a person's faith in him. Together, these two tell us there is no hopelessness in Jesus Christ. If you are rich, there is no barrier to your salvation. You know, often the, the portrayal of Christianity among the rich, I think very much in our own culture as a result, is that Jesus is an unnecessary crutch. He's something for those who do not have their own means to rely upon, needing something or someone else to depend on because they can't do it on their own. It may raise the eyes of neighbors for that person to submit themselves to Christ. But in the eyes of the world, it's a hopeless case. Likewise, if if someone is poor and unable to afford fine clothes, they don't have close friends, they're abandoned by family, they're completely unaware of what goes on in the church, they're uneducated, perhaps uh, illiterate, you name it. We see in this gospel account time and time and time again in the ministry of Jesus, these are not barriers to Christ. In riches or in poverty, Jesus is our greatest need. He's the only true lasting source of hope and joy and satisfaction. Come to Jesus, whoever you are, whatever your condition, and he will receive you gladly. He is a savior for all who are hopeless. That is what we see time and again in the ministry of Christ. Now, what's obvious in both of these situations is great suffering. On the part of this poor woman, For 12 years, no physician was able to assist her. No one would have even been willing to touch her. She had a physical issue. Undoubtedly, she had a spiritual issue. And she struggled with loneliness and depression. Jairus was suffering through the pain of his daughter being ill to the point of death. His daughter was suffering through whatever had brought her to this point in her life. And in all of these individuals, we can imagine all of the thoughts and fears and concerns that were in their minds and that plagued their hearts. But what's very obvious here is that Jesus wasn't indifferent. And in fact, he shows great compassion And what I want to point out is that he was right on time. Notice the desperation of Jairus, and understandably so. His daughter is about to die. And compare that to this woman, 12 years, and probably near complete and total hopelessness after so many have tried unsuccessfully to make her well. She's probably given up. And it's so often in circumstances like this that we wonder where God is in our desperation for an answer right now, this minute, in this moment. 
or in our despair and our hopelessness because for so long we've longed for relief and restoration and answer to prayer, yet it seems like God has completely avoided our cries altogether. But in the providence of God, in the midst of our suffering, we learn something very valuable in these two instances. Jesus will always do what he does at the right time. Never too soon, never too late. Now that's not to say that the outcome of God's providential working will always be exactly what we expect or what we want it to be in our hearts. But we must recognize too that the outcome will be that which God is working for the ultimate good of his people and the glory of his name. God's providence and our desired outcome may not always be the same thing. But this is why Jesus taught us to pray, not Jesus do what I ask, but your will be done. Because God's will is far greater than whatever we could conceive of on our own, even when it seems otherwise. You see, Jesus wasn't just making his way back and forth across the Sea of Galilee to see what he might stumble upon, that he might perform a few miracles here and there. Every move of Jesus was very calculated. The Holy Spirit directed his move toward that which was providentially designed to instruct, to provide relief, to provide compassion, to save, and to grow the faith of God's people. In very much the same way today, Jesus reminds us in Luke 12, even the hairs of your head are numbered. You see, the Lord is very concerned about even that which seems to be the most insignificant and mundane of facts in our lives. We are the dear children of God. And what great comfort we can take in knowing that surely he is not indifferent to our suffering. He is not lax in providing for our needs. And so in the midst of our suffering, we can know that everything God does in our lives is at work for his greater purposes, even when things appear to be completely and totally out of control and helpless. This is our God who loves us and cares for us and provides for our every need. Let's continue in verse 45. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So Jesus, pushing through the people, immediately stops and makes note of what had just happened. Indeed, we must recognize it was an act willed by God and therefore recognized for its significance by Jesus. Who touched me? No answer. 
Certainly, it had probably quieted down significantly as Jesus spoke, and everyone was waiting to see what would happen next. The people looked at one another. It wasn't me. Was it you? No, it wasn't me. And then we hear from Peter. Oh, Peter. You know, a guy like me really has to love a guy like Peter. Sometimes it seems like in the gospel accounts, Peter only opens his mouth long enough to remove one foot so that he can insert the other. I think Peter needed to be healed from foot and mouth disease. I think often you can see Peter said things that I can imagine the other, decep- the other disciples just stopped and shook their heads and they were embarrassed for Peter. Completely clueless about the silly things he was saying. He strikes me as a man who was uncomfortable with the quiet. And so he wanted to make sure that among everyone he appeared to know something when he was most often very ignorant of the circumstances. But what encourages me about Peter is to see the man he becomes later in Scripture. What a tremendous transformation he underwent by the work of God in his life. So here Peter answers foolishly. He approaches Jesus with the attitude that Jesus was being irrational or even foolish himself. There are people in every direction you turn. They're all touching you. What are you talking about? But Jesus says, somebody touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, at the same time, we have to consider Jairus' reaction to this interruption. Precious time is being wasted while his little daughter's life was slipping away. Jesus is his last hope, and now all of a sudden he stopped in the middle of the road trying to figure out among all these people who touched him. Come on, Jesus. My daughter is dying, and you're worried about someone in this rude crowd of people? But Jesus' providential plan included something far greater, not only for this poor, helpless woman, but as we will see, for Jairus and his family as well. It was well-intentioned that Jesus stopped while the little girl faded into death. But we can imagine, as Jesus asks, who touched me, this woman's heart was throbbing. She'd been healed instantly, so surely she was filled with joy, but at the same time, she's also struck with fear. Oh, no, he stopped. He wants to know. I can imagine the the tears just running down her cheeks. Christ was calling her out of the crowd to stand before the people for her sake and for Jairus' sake in a way that nobody actually knew. But in her heart, I can imagine she's wondering, is Jesus going to take away the cure because I have disobeyed the law? What would all of these other people think of me that I pushed through them in my uncleanliness to touch the master's garment? What are they going to do to me? At its heart, undoubtedly, it can be said that the woman's faith was an ignorant faith. She had sought a a magical cure, a last-ditch effort that, that maybe if she just 
touched Jesus, perhaps he was charged with some kind of healing power that would zap her to instant health. Her faith was uninformed. It was, it was superstitious. It was presumptuous. It was imperfect. But you know, at even the smallest level, what's clear is that her faith was real. And Christ honored her fledgling faith. What a great encouragement to us to know that God does the same thing today. You know, beginning faith in the life of a new Christian is uninformed. It's mixed with errors and misconceptions about things. Great, wonderful, biblical things like the dual nature of Christ or the Trinity or the atonement or the use of the law or how we have the scriptures we have. But, but foggy understandings of these things are often the true beginning of authentic, informed trust in Christ. We can take courage in the fact that we do not have to have everything figured out doctrinally in order to possess a faith that pleases God. Now, certainly we must believe that Christ is God and that he died for our sins. We must rest everything on that great and glorious life-giving truth. But true faith is not the sole property of the spiritually elite or those with the most Christian education. Additionally, it's fair to say that the woman's faith was not only ignorant, but it was selfish. She wanted health, but let's be honest, initially, it's not likely that she especially cared all that much about who was going to heal her. She just wanted to be healed. And this is too common with the beginnings of our faith. We come to Jesus because of some kind of problem. We reach out to him in stumbling faith amidst the pressing of the crowd. But recognizing a genuine yearning and trust, Jesus comes to us in compassion and love. And it is only through the days and months and years of walking with Jesus that our faith moves from selfish ambition to a true and genuine desire to not simply gain, but to give glory to the Savior himself. But we see the heart of Jesus here. Among the hundreds of hands around him, he recognized that one of those hands had reached out to him in faith. And perhaps you are sensing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, calling you to repentance of your sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, his call upon your life is to move toward him it will not go unnoticed by the master. Because we see in both of these instances with Jairus and with this woman that Jesus is very accessible. He does not turn those away who come in faith. Let's look at what he, how he responds to this woman as she came to him in verse 48. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well Go in peace. So Jesus grants this woman physical restoration. He made her well instantly. 
He also gave her social restoration. A woman who for 12 years was unable to have any true interaction with those she loved and even those within the community. She was treated like a leper and an outcast, but now she was clean. She was well. She was able to be among the people again. And then she heard those beautiful words of Jesus. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, Jesus not only granted her physical and social restoration, he granted her spiritual restoration. This is the only time in the New Testament when Jesus calls someone daughter. Clearly, what's being identified here is that she is a child of God. Spiritually, she has been made well. And notice, in gentle, patient terms, he makes her aware. It wasn't her superstition. It wasn't some magic. It wasn't anything uniquely special about her personally that made her well. It was faith. It was her faith, which itself is a gift from God. And it brought her to God. It brought her into relationship with Christ as a person, as a savior, as a redeemer, as a healer. And now she knows him as a friend. How beautiful and compassionate our Lord is. By calling her out of the crowd, he announced before everyone that indeed she has been healed. And this woman represents the need for all of humanity. We are all diseased with sin. We are all in need of a great remedy to be released from the false promises of the world. But friends, if you have not ran to Christ in faith, I beg of you, do not fear that you are too ignorant or too selfish or too sinful. Fear only one thing. Fear that Jesus might pass by and you not have an encounter with him touching his garment, that you too might be made clean. And so we see as Jesus continues in his walk toward the home of Jairus, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Surely this incident with the woman would have been a reminder to Jairus why he came to Jesus in the first place. Full of compassion, full of power. But then came the shock, master, Your daughter, she's dead. 
these growing flames of hope in the heart of Jairus were simultaneously snuffed out. What an emotional roller coaster for poor Jairus at this point. Fear turns to hope and again to instant despair. But Jesus doesn't allow him to continue in hopelessness. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe and she will be made well. And we cannot miss the providential arrangement here. Jairus came to Jesus with an uninformed, wishful, last-ditch effort of hope that Jesus could heal his daughter, very much the same mindset as the woman who touched his garment. Within minutes, he was all the more encouraged. And then he was let down. But here again, called to be faithful. Could it be that Jesus was going to raise his daughter from the dead? Did Jairus believe that this would happen? Well, at even the smallest level, it seemed as though he could. It seems as though Jairus believed that Jesus might. Otherwise, Jesus and the three disciples would have never returned to Jairus' home and entered the room of the daughter in the first place where she lay dead. Luke tells us that Jesus ordered all of the people who were around in mourning, most likely because Jairus was a man of great means. There was a group of people who were paid to be mourners, and they would come and they would cry out in obnoxious wails. But Jesus orders them to stop, to stop. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they all laugh at him. They knew that she was dead. But you see, Jesus was interpreting death from God's viewpoint. True death, eternal death, is separation of the soul from God. Not the soul from the body. Her dead body was sleeping. But Jesus was going to bring it back to life. But the people were filled with unbelief. She's dead. She's not asleep. How silly. How foolish. She doesn't have a beating heart. She's not breathing. How difficult for Jairus to remain hopeful, to remain faithful in the midst of the scoffing of the people. Isn't it often the case in our trials, in our suffering, in our pain, in our grieving, that all of a sudden Job's friends show up in our lives? Admittedly, it often seems like everything is arrayed against us. It seems as though what works in life is money and power and fame and anything beyond that is hopeless. It appears often as though the life of sin and deceit and pleasure is the way to be content because in the end we're just going to be hopeless. And the world and our flesh are battling against us as we strive to remain faithful. So much is calling us to doubt and unbelief and fear. All of this includes, of course, the unbelief of those around us. The scoffing of those who think faith in Christ is ridiculous. That trusting in Jesus is, is lunacy. Perhaps you've experienced it. You tell coworkers and friends that in the midst of hard times that your joy is made complete by trusting in Jesus. And they roll their eyes. Or perhaps they assume you mean the same thing that they do when they say those words but continue to wallow in their unbelief because they don't truly know Jesus Christ. 
It's the same situation Jairus found himself in. Would he succumb to unbelief? Or would he despise it and instead look to Jesus with hope and with trust? There is great power in Jesus Christ to bring about life where death once resided. He reached out. He takes the girl by the hand and he called on her. Child, arise. Can you hear the words as they fall on that child's dull, cold ears? You can see her eyes blink and dilate and flutter into focus. And the first thing she saw was the face of Jesus. And then she looks around and she sees the wet faces of her mother and father. And then the astonished faces of the three disciples. And Jesus tells them, give her some food. They were amazed. And he ordered them to tell no one as he went on his way. You know, it's interesting to note here that in our previous text, Jesus commanded the demoniac, after he was healed, to tell everyone of the great thing that God has done in releasing him from the bondage of the demon. And yet here he tells Jairus and his wife to tell no one about what had happened. I think the best explanation was that Jesus wanted to hold back the growing tendency of the people to assume that Jesus was there simply to give all of them what they wanted. One commentator explains, Jesus knows that he is healed, he is headed for a different kind of ministry than the people will want from him. The type of commitment that will be required of them should they follow him is one of suffering, not comfort. But you see, this whole story is a vast tale of divine providence. A desperate father, a dying girl, a desperate woman, a delayed Jesus, and then a believing woman. A dead girl who became a living girl, and now a believing man. The choreography of heaven and the providence of God is astonishing. And the entire eighth chapter of Luke's gospel is about faith in Christ and the story of Jairus and the woman are the exclamation point emphasizing faith's centrality in the life of a Christian. Great is the reward of faith in Jesus Christ because through faith we receive his saving power. And at the end of the passage, the saving power of Christ is seen in the transformation of tears and laughter. Amid tears of pain and loss, Jesus arrives with the power to save. And the cries of sorrow and the laughter of mockery are changed to tears and laughter of amazement and joy. But we must remember, sickness and sorrow and suffering would come again to Jairus' house. You see, that girl would ultimately die. It's not the point of the passage for us to assume otherwise. The point is that true faith is drawn from and directs us toward Jesus Christ and his power and his provision. These miracles are not designed to guarantee us that if we just believe that we won't grow sick or that none of us will die or suffer. We will know sickness, and should Christ tarry, we will all soon die soon enough. But this is a window 
that Jesus shows us into the day to come, into the kingdom Christ brings when there will be no death and suffering and tears. On that day, the Bible promises us, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our hope. That's our joy. And that is what we rest our great faith in, because Jesus has already accomplished it for us. Amen. Let's pray together. God, your work and the life of your people is amazing. As many of us even consider how it is that we came to you. Perhaps it was in very small faith, an ignorant faith, a selfish pursuit, a desire just to simply reach out and hope that maybe you could do something for us in times of despair. And yet, God, we rejoice that for your great purposes and full of mercy and compassion, you saw fit to bring us to that place of faith and to honor it, to place upon us the righteousness that is in Christ alone giving to us what is not ours and what is not deserved, and yet what you have determined should be ours because you have promised that it would be. And so, Father, we come as a people who are yet again amazed, amazed at the love and compassion of our Savior, Amazed that as we see his work in the lives of those who gathered around him, that he honored fledgling, weak, selfish, and in many ways very insignificant faith. And yet among those people, we see those who return to have great faith, to know and love and cherish Jesus. And among us, we see the very same. That we move from these very small ideas about what faith truly is to a place where our desire, our hope, our longings are no longer primarily resting upon ourselves, but upon the glory of Christ. Our desires are transformed and our want is to see Jesus made much of through our suffering, through our pain. And so I pray, God, that you would give us those kinds of hearts. And among us today, Lord, that those who are far from Christ, that you would bring them to a place of repentance, that they would see their need for the only hope that there is in this life and the life to come, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. 
thank you for the gifts that are ours because of what you have accomplished on our behalf, in our Savior and in our friend. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.